Hello, and welcome to the Dutch Podcast Summer School Edition. I'm Dr. Jacqueline Smeaton, Chief Medical Officer at Dutch, and I'm thrilled you're here to learn more about hormone health and functional medicine. The Dutch Podcast is taking a break from its usual format to bring you some enriching conversations with our Dutch clinical educators. We'll be diving into case studies of actual Dutch reports and exploring how evaluating hormones and hormone metabolism can help you get to the root cause of your complex patient problems. To learn more about Dutch testing and the extensive hormone education resources that are available for free to Dutch providers, visit our website at dutchtest.com backslash providers. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Dutch Summer School. Today, I'm going to be joined by our clinical educator, Lindsay Sapansky, and she's going to cover everything you could possibly want to know about breast cancer, estrogen metabolism, and estrogen dominance. Whenever we're seeing estrogens higher than the progesterone, um, it, it when it's out of balance, it kind of falls into that estrogen dominant looking picture. Um, it's used to kind of describe when, when the hormone imbalances arise, you know, when estrogen levels are relatively higher than progesterone. We'll even be reviewing a Dutch report of a postmenopausal female who was recently diagnosed with breast cancer and discuss how her methylation, how her phase one and phase two clearance, and how her oat panel really can influence the way you might support that patient through their treatment plan. We're going to talk all about some of the things that can contribute to breast cancer as well. And if we have that really robust estrogen at certain times of the cycle for long periods of time, that's kind of increasing their tissue exposure at the receptor sites over time. And that can be an increased risk factor for a couple of different things. You know, if we know when there's not enough progesterone, we can see endometrial cancer risks increase. But we can also know in the research that elevated endogenous estrogen production is also a risk factor for for breast cancer. And as Lindsay describes these, these are modifiable risk factors. So things like a relative estrogen dominance or a not perfect estrogen metabolism are all things that you can change and support. So if you're working with patients with any kind of risk of breast cancer, concern with breast cancer, you want to do prevention or support women who are going through treatment, you are not going to want to miss today's episode. Let's get started. Lindsay Sapansky is a board-certified women's health nurse practitioner and has been practicing as a women's health nurse practitioner for over a decade. And prior to that, she worked as a nurse in labor and delivery for five years. So she knows women really, really well. Um, Lindsay's worked in many diverse settings, including a traditional OBGYN practice, a gynecology-only practice, a family practice, and then she moved into functional medicine and bioidentical hormone replacement practice. Um, and she's been a clinical clinical consultant with Precision Analytical since the fall of 2021. Along the way, she's had the chance to work with and learn from some of the most advanced and sought out providers in healthcare. And now she's become one of those sought out providers. So we're so lucky to have you here today, Lindsay. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to it. So we're talking today a little bit about kind of a combination topic, which is looking at estrogen dominance, but specifically what it means in terms of when we think about breast cancer, because this is a topic that a lot of people are concerned about, and maybe they oversimplify it a little bit as well. So I'm hoping you can share a little bit more with us today and with our listeners, help us kind of open our eyes into how we should be thinking about this. So can you start by talking a little bit about estrogen dominance and just what that even means? Yeah. So um, whenever we're seeing estrogens higher than the progesterone, um, it, it when it's out of balance, it kind of falls into that estrogen dominant looking picture. Um, it's used to kind of describe when when the hormone imbalances arise, 
you know, when estrogen levels are relatively higher than progesterone levels, uh, you're going to see it in a couple of different scenarios. So progesterone could still be within range for that timing of the cycle, but estrogen's kind of surged above that, you know, if we're talking about the mid-luteal phase, maybe uh, it's it's even higher than what you would expect. So in relation to that progesterone, it's, it's high. Um, but you could also have estrogen and progesterone both within the range, if we're talking about the mid-luteal range. But estrogen maybe looks, you know, if you're looking at a dial per se, is higher on a range on the dial compared to the progesterone. Even though they're technically within mid-luteal range, that estrogen is still uh, relatively higher. Um, you can have also like even in a postmenopausal patient per se, uh, where the progesterone is where you would expect for a postmenopausal patient, but the estrogens have maybe bumped up a little bit higher than uh, what you would expect for postmenopausal range. And that would look like an estrogen dominant picture. Uh, and then we can also talk about estrogen dominance in the sense of maybe estrogen and progesterone both looked fairly decent or relative to one another. But when we get into the estrogen metabolism, uh, of the detoxification pathways, maybe they're not clearing things very efficiently and they're favoring certain pathways and that can kind of create a, an estrogen dominant looking picture or profile or symptom profile as well. Oh, that's really interesting. So even if the hormones look normal, when you're looking at like estrone, estradiol, progesterone, but when you look at estrogen metabolites, you can see that because there's inefficient metabolism, they're coming up with a lot of symptoms, Yeah, which is funny. And you put, we wouldn't pick that up in serum either. No, that's yeah. where the urinary metabolites come in nicely. Um, uh, and, you know, if you're looking at a report, we typically, where we would be talking about maybe like the 4-OH, which is the red pathway on the reports, or the 16-OH pathway, which is the blue pathway on the reports. If they're pushing too heavily down those pathways, uh, you may see some estrogen dominant symptoms, uh, mm. especially with like the 16-OH, which is a blue pathway. Uh, that is our more proliferative pathway. So if someone's really favoring that pathway, they oftentimes complain of those estrogen dominant symptoms like heavy bleeding, fibroids, PMS, migraines, breast tenderness, things like that. And then we can also have maybe that phase one looks good. You know, the red and the blue pathway are okay. But then when they get further downstream, they're not methylating as efficiently as we would hope. And so they're not getting these estrogens ready for clearance out of the body. So it's kind of starting mm -hmm. to backlog or kind of, um, yeah, I mean, backlog, I guess, where it's like building up, I guess, and they're not getting out. And that can kind of create some some estrogen dominant looking pictures as well. And potentially some problems because a lot of those can cause cellular damage too. those intermediates are a lot more kind of reactive and stuff, too. Yep. So. Um, you know, you mentioned the mid luteal levels, and I think that's important for listeners. When we look at estrogen dominance, and we're talking about it on a Dutch test, we only are really measuring, unless you're doing a full cycle map, we're measuring, you know, midpoint of the luteal phase. So why do we look at that measure? And like, why is that a good time to kind of assess whether someone has that pattern? Yeah, for the cycling females, um, because we really only surge progesterone in that second half of the cycle. Progesterone actually stays pretty low in the beginning of the cycle, the follicular phase, and also ovulatory phase when estrogen would actually be peaking at ovulation. Uh, but then when we get into the mid-luteal phase, uh, estrogen should be coming back down again, but it it's... Um, not as low as the follicular phase, the first half of the cycle, but it's coming back down. But that's when progesterone actually is surging after we ovulate. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that's kind of the nice time of looking at those ratios because, or, or how they are in relation to one another is, did the estrogen and progesterone kind of help balance each other? Or are we seeing a lot more estrogen and the progesterone didn't get that nice peak? And now you've got this estrogen dominant looking picture. And if we have that really robust estrogen at certain times of the cycle for long periods of time, that's kind of increasing our tissue exposure at the receptor sites over time. And that could be an increased risk factor for a couple of different things. You know, if we know when there's not enough progesterone, we can see endometrial cancer risks increase. But we can also know in the research that elevated endogenous estrogen production is also a risk factor for, for breast cancer. Mm, okay. So let's talk a little bit more about why that estrogen dominance ends up being a risk factor for breast cancer. Yeah. Um, so again, if they're having kind of this long-term increased exposure from robust amounts of estrogen, that could be a problem. Um, but also it's worrisome if we not clearing them through, you know, metabolizing them through efficiently through the phase one and the phase two. Um, so estrogen metabolism is really only one factor of a breast cancer risk factor. So it's not the only thing that's, you know, taking into play, but it is a modifiable factor. Mm -hmm. Uh, same with like weight management or smoking exercise diet. It's something that someone can probably work on so that they aren't favoring those more worrisome or problematic, uh, pathways. Sorry, that's a really great way to think about it because I know in literature, we used to think that there was like so much emphasis on the phase one metabolite that you preferred and the link to cancer. And that does exist, but maybe not as strong a correlation as we like originally thought with the initial data. But I, it's a really important point to think about that this is just something that's easy to modify. Yeah. Um, so it is a contributing factor. So why not address the things that you can, particularly if you're in a place where you have a high risk due to other reasons, genetics, family history, things like that, that definitely would put you in a place where, you know, understanding how you're clearing estrogen and doing what you can to optimize it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we want to kind of jump into, you know, like all those things you talked about that can play a role, we know like liver metabolism and or if there's poor liver function or gut dysbiosis or sulfation issues, those things can all affect how, you know, things are being cleared through the body. Um, for instance, like the 4-OH pathway, the, the red pathway, which is our more problematic pathway, the more oxidative stress DNA damage pathway, things that can kind of upregulate that pathway are genetics, but also alcohol and nicotine, your endocrine disruptors, um, the 16-OH pathway, that blue pathway, that that's a more proliferative pathway, can be increased by things with inflammation, um, gut dysbiosis, obesity, pesticides, smoking. Um, lots of foods or medications can influence that pathway too, because it's influenced by the cytochrome pathway, the CYP3A4 enzyme, which is the main enzyme of the liver. So that plays a role into things as well. Um, and then like we talked about methylation too, like if they're, it's using the COMP-T enzyme. So if they're not methylating well in phase two, I call this the clog in the drain. We need to open up the mm -hmm. clog so those estrogens can get out. I see that a lot. I mean, when I'm looking at, you look at so many more reports than I do, but I feel like with most of my patients, I'm so much more likely to see a phase two problem than a phase one problem. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we do see both. Yeah. Kind of, um, you know, the phase one and the phase two being an issue. Um, kind of a, a good way of describing that phase one, those phase one metabolites, your 2-OH-E1, your 4-OH-E1, 16-OH-E1. 
they're considered free radicals uh, when they're in their semi-quinone or quinone state. So when estrogens are not being cleared effectively, they kind of oxidize, oxidize downstream into quinones and then they become, that can kind of maybe start to initiate a pathway to cancer. Um, so that's kind of like where that phase one is really important, but you're right when we're looking at it, like if the phase two is off, you're almost kind of backlogging, you're pushing back up into the phase one. And so it's important to kind of look at both of those, those pathways. Mm-hmm. Um, but when estrogen metabolites get into that semi-quinone or quinone state, they combine to the DNA and they form these addicts. Uh, the 2-OHE1, the, the green pathway, if you're looking at the report, uh, tends to be a more stable addict, whereas that 4-OHE1, uh, which is your red pathway, that's more of an unstable addict, or they also are called like de- depurinating uh, addicts. Um, but when those metabolites get into those states, they can bind to the DNA. And, and especially if they're forming like the unstable addicts, that's where the problems start to arise and they could lead to potential for DNA mutation and potentially increase cancer risk factors. Yeah. Makes a yeah. lot of sense. Yeah. So I know you've also pulled a case that mm-hmm. kind of demonstrates this. So I'd love for you to talk through. I know many of you are just listening, um, but we will put a link to the Dutch report in the show notes so that if you want to pause it and open that up, you can definitely talk, you know, follow along with us visually. But even without that lens, it's going to kind of help us see an example of a patient where this has really come up. Yeah. So that that particular report that we're talking about or referring to, this is this is a um, postmenopausal patient, early 50s, uh, that was recently diagnosed with DCIS, invasive breast cancer, about a month or two before she did uh, her Dutch testing, and she wanted to see how she was clearing those estrogens through and any other risk factors. Um, So when you get a chance to look at that report, you'll see that her estrogen actually is closer to almost a mid-luteal range, uh, which would be considered elevated in a postmenopausal patient. Her progesterone is where you would expect it to be for a postmenopausal patient in the purple band, if you're looking at those those, results. results but that oh, kind sorry. of can we, can we stop right there yeah. like what would make a postmenopausal woman have estrogen in the mid luteal range for a cycling female like what are some of the things that come to mind for you yeah i mean things to look into would be you know poor liver um if they have high androgens and they're aromatizing quite a bit insulin resistance obesity alcohol smoking um also like a uh, gut dysbiosis. Uh, mm-hmm. If they have um, certain things kind of going on there, they sometimes are reabsorbing and recirculating some of those estrogens, kind of creating uh, an estrogen dominant picture. So um, can be a handful of things that, that play yeah. a role into it. But what about environmental toxins? Do you see that yeah. elevate? Okay, because I know that's yeah. another concern that we are always thinking about with patients, but I didn't know if you'd see that clinically on the report. Yeah, yep, you might see those um, there as well. So, and this particular patient had. Um, estrogen receptive positive uh, breast cancer. Uh, so that's another worrisome thing, you know, that it's like, she's got this higher estrogen in relation to her progesterone. Her estrogen's higher than you'd ex- expect for a postmenopausal patient, not on HRT. Uh, and then uh, she's got this breast cancer that's really receptive to that extra estrogen around. So hmm. something that she's definitely going to want to like see is her, you know, work on those, those factors, but then also working downstream. Can we get these cleared out? And tell me a little bit about what you see in her estrogen metabolism. Yeah. So um, her, there's a, there's a couple of things that jump out on her report that are, you know, that we would be worried about. But when we look at the 
green, red, and blue pathway. Uh, and there's also a pie chart to the right of it when you're looking at the report. That's all part of what we call the phase one detoxification of the estrogens. We want to be sending the majority of our estrogens down the green pathway, which is your 2-OH pathway. It's considered somewhat a safer metabolite. Um, it can bind to the estrogen receptors with less affinity and not as tightly. It's, it can form more of a stable addict within the, the DNA should it start to create some havoc there. Um, but it tends to have a weaker carcinogenic effect than the mm -hmm. unstable addicts. And she's doing a good job of that. She's sending the majority of those estrogens down the green pathway. Um, if we're looking underneath that pie chart, it'll show that she's sending about 83.8% of her estrogens down that 2-OH, the green pathway, which is our more preferred protective pathway. We like to see it 60% or greater. Um, but then when we get to the red pathway, the 4-OH pathway, that's that more, you know, carcinogenic pathway, that DNA damage pathway, she's sending about 14.5% of her estrogens down that pathway. And we want to see that 11% or less. So she is starting to favor that pathway a little bit too much, which is not ideal, especially with someone with current breast cancer. Um, so things that can kind of influence that pathway, like we talked about genetics, alcohol, nicotine, endocrine disruptors, your perfumes, detergents, plastics, heavy metals, things to kind of try to clean that up. Um, you know, like cleaning up environmental exposures are going to be helpful, mm -hmm. but other things that are just really helpful for phase one are going to be general liver support, adequate bowel movements. Think about getting those things moving through. Um, and if you're ever looking at a steroid pathway chart, you're going to see things like glutathione, which is a master antioxidant, which is really important for this pathway, sulforaphane, cruciferous veggies, rosemary, ground flax seeds, um, you know, those can maybe help push the red to the green or that 4-OH to the 2-OH to try get it down that more stable pathway versus the 4-OH, which is your unstable addict pathway, if they keep pushing too heavily down there. The troublemaker um, pathway. The troublemaker. Yeah. And I was just going to say, yeah. let me kind of backtrack on that a little bit. Like, what is the <laughs> difference? And a good visual that I was kind of given when I was being taught about these different pathways is... Imagine your stable addicts being kind of that obedient pet. So when they get messy, they're walking around outside mud puddles and they sneak in through the doggy door and you catch them on the rug and you're like, stay there, don't move. So they've kind of created that mess, but they stayed put and you can get over there. The DNA repair system can come in and clean it up before it you know, creates havoc all through your house. Those are going to be more like your, your stable addicts or the green pathway, the 2-OH pathway. Um, but your 4-OH pathway is your unstable addict or the depurinating deep addict. And they're kind of your naughty puppy. They were outside playing in the mud puddles. They snuck in through the doggy door and they take off through your house. And they <laughs> destroyed your furniture. They've got mud everywhere. Um, and they're kind of naughty. So it's not that it can't get cleaned up. It can. But the DNA repair system then kind of has to like spread out and and kind of bolt through the house trying to clean up as much of the mess before it gets sets in or creates holes in the house or, or whatnot so it's a little harder to catch them and they leave a little bit more destruction mm -hmm. behind and then because they had to kind of like spread out they don't do as good of a job cleaning so now it's a weaker system and then that dna is more likely to um maybe have some mutations and yeah. so they're at risk for that dna you know well let me tell you that is like a very relatable comparison. <laughs> I'm thinking, I have two dogs. So I'm thinking about my two dogs. I've got this like black lab mix dog who's like seven and she's kind of more like a cat. She's like very chill and quiet. 
and yeah. problem free. And because she was such an easy dog, we got a second dog, mm. this like 180 pound English Mastiff, who is exactly what you described. She'll like yeah. throw the water and then like slip by you, slip out of her collar, run everywhere, shake, drool, yeah. you yeah. know. And nightmare. you can get it cleaned up, right? But now your resources got, you know, but it, spread out it, a little too thin. It's tiring to do it, though. You need <laughs> it is. Glutathione resources. You need, like, children yes. to come in yes. there and help scrub the floors. <laughs> exactly. That's a great way of describing it. That's that, And that's how you can think of the 2OH and the 4OH pathways. You know, I will like, always think about yeah. my dogs. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. One that's obedient, maybe made a little bit of a mess, but stayed put where you can get to it quicker. Where the yeah. other one, yeah, was your your big dog. So yeah, beyond yeah. control. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. So phase two is going to be where we go. You know, do we? So phase one is did we send those estrogens down the right pipes in the right ratios? Is kind of mm-hmm. how I think of it. Is we turned on the sink? Did those estrogens go down the right pipes? Phase two is going to be further down the drain. Um, are we methylating them efficiently to get them ready for clearance out of the body? And if they have slow or low methylation activity, it's kind of like that clog in the drain. Things Mm. are probably getting through a little bit, but not at the rate that they need to. Um, Versus when we have, if you're looking at our reports where you follow the green arrow down to the 2-OH, it goes to the left, uh, uses the COMP-T enzyme for methylation to the 2-methoxy. And we have this fan gauge on the far bottom left corner that shows methylation activity. And ideally, we like to be mid to high on that fan gauge because yeah. we want to be good methylators so we can get these estrogens ready for clearance. Um, again, if it was on the low side, then think of the clog and we need to maybe work on that COMP-T to help with methylation, which are going to be like your methyl donors. Yeah, And then phase three, we don't test because we're a urinary test, but phase three is going to be um, elimination. Are they able, having adequate bowel movements and adequate, you know, a healthy GI system to get these things out completely? Mm-hmm. And yeah. we can't always, you can't always see that, you know, when you're not doing stool testing, but there's right. a couple of things that I find to be helpful for that. One is just the patient's report on how often they go to the bathroom. Like really people should be having the bowel movement like at least twice a day. At least once a day at a bare minimum, but like yeah. twice a day is what we think of as being a little bit more helpful. Um, and then I think the other piece of that is we do have one marker on the OATS panel called Indican, which was new last year, which will go up in instances of dysbiosis. So it's not specific. It doesn't tell you what the dysbiosis is, but you will see it elevated in cases where there's gut infections. And that might be two things that you could use to screen patients to see if it's worthwhile to invest in a more comprehensive stool test. Although most people could use a little bit of help on their gut anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Awesome. Any other like final considerations for this patient? Yeah. I mean, that was kind of the big things with her like that. I didn't, you know, we didn't like seeing that high estrogen in relation to her progesterone. We didn't like seeing the elevated uh, 4-OH red pathway, your naughty dog pathway. Um, her methylation looked good on this report. Um, and then this is not really related. To, I know we were focusing more on the phase one and phase two, but um, other markers that you might see if you pull up that report. Uh, she had a low end uh, melatonin, which is important for your your cancer patients. She also had on her back pages of the report, page six on the OATS page, she had an elevated pyroglutamate, which is a glutathione marker. And on our test, it's an inverse relationship. So if you have an elevated uh, marker, it means you're deficient in the tissues. So mm-hmm. she actually probably needs a lot of glutathione, which is also going to be helpful for her red pathway on page three. And then she also, her 8-OHDG marker, which is 
a marker that's looking for oxidative stress or DNA damage um, at the time of testing. Her level was at a four, uh, but on our test, once it hits 4.2 or higher, it starts to kind of flag the report that this mm -hmm. level is creeping up. So she wasn't quite there, but knowing her history, I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, really working on that antioxidant status, stress reduction, fruits and vegetables, removing those toxin exposures. Um, she, so this was this was a really good test that they ran on her, um, knowing her history that she's got some work to do. Yeah, I'm really sold on the benefit of that because you can, uh, of testing when women have either high risk of or known breast cancer. I think you could really do a lot to work to modify. And even if a patient's on medication because they're being treated for breast cancer, they're on chemotherapy, some of those agents interact with estrogen. So even if that was the case, there's still the lifestyle work and the nutrition work that you could do, yeah. even if the oncologist wasn't comfortable with supplementation. Right. You know, you've listed 20 other things that you could do to help that patient um, yeah. along that journey. So I think those yeah. are some really excellent suggestions. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. It's been great having you here. Thanks for coming to summer school and, and teaching a class for us. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. It was great chatting. We are so grateful you could join us for this interesting and informative dialogue. If you want to learn more about hormones and hormone testing with Dutch, there are many resources available to you when you become a Dutch provider. Register today at dutchtest.com backslash providers to gain access to free educational tools like the Mastering Functional Hormone Testing Course, a self-paced online course designed to help you become a hormone expert. Dutch providers also have exclusive access to the Dutch Interpretive Guide, which is full of insights that will help you apply Dutch testing in your practice. And our Dutch clinical educators host one-on-one -on -one and group consultation sessions where providers can learn how to interpret patient reports. Become a provider today to learn more about how to access these resources through the Dutch Provider Portal. And thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us again.